In Psalm 35, David makes an amazing statement when he says, All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Oh, Father, for us to be able to say that all our bones praise your name. Father, that the very depth of our being, the very essence of of who we are, Lord, you're the work of your hands, your actual creation, Father, that we could say from the very depth of our being, from the essence of who we are, all of it praises you. Father, that's our longing, that's our desire, simply because you're worthy of our adoration and our worship and our praise. And, and Father, we know you're worthy of it, and the, the supreme demonstration and reason is what we've been reminded of already, that Jesus stared into the abyss of death and sin and wrath and punishment and separation from you, and he stepped into it. And he went through it, and he endured the cross, and he despised the shame, but he came out victorious on the other side. And Lord, your, your word says, it describes it as, as, as tearing a veil, as passing through it, Father, so that we, by faith, by the grace and the blood and the power of Jesus Christ, can enter into that relationship with you, enter into the presence where you are, Father. We can do it by faith now. One day we'll do it by sight and in reality, and all our bones will praise your name, saying, glory to the God who delivers us from affliction. Glory to the God who delivers us from those who would steal and rob and kill and destroy, Lord. And some of us were there this morning. Father, we have an enemy. Your word says so. There's warfare. The Bible says Satan does come to steal and kill and destroy, and he's doing well. But our God is greater than all. Father, we praise you for that this morning, and we take refuge and comfort in that, that, Father, on our very worst day, just as much as on our very best, you are greater than all. You are in control, and you come alongside, and, Father, your spirit lives within us, and you'll show us what to do. You always know what to do, Lord. You always know where to lead. You always know how to reach into our hearts. And, and Father, we're just going to ask that we're going to praise you first that to whatever degree you've done that already, that you've gripped our hearts and minds this morning. We praise you for that, Father. And, and now we ask that you do it even still as we go to your word. Father, not because we're such great musicians and speakers and because we picked the right songs and, and all those sorts of things, but because even when we're weak and frail and fumbling around, Father, you listen and you receive our praise. Father, I pray as we open your word that you'd be our teacher today because I'm not up to the task. No, no one is. Father, at, at best we can give you, Father, what we know and what we see and, and all we can. It, it's been revealed to us by you in the first place. So you take this word that's about to be preached and you impress it to our hearts whatever way you want to. And Father, move our agenda aside. Lord, for that to happen, as always, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you come and guide us in truth. We ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you'd guard us from error and misunderstanding. God, deliver us, we pray, from all that stuff we carried in with us. And for the next few minutes, let us see Jesus. Father, not a preacher, not a church, not a sermon, not a big idea, but help us to see Jesus. God, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And may we leave with our very bones crying out, glory to God who has done great things and will do them for us again. 
Father, thank you that you're here with us even now. Make us attentive to your still small voice, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible, because we want to get right into, uh, into our text this morning in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 is, uh, we're beginning right at the very start of it today, and, and for those of you who may have been uh, not been here last week, or maybe you were and you don't recall, let me just remind you before we jump right into the text exactly where we are and what's going on as we continue to sort of trek and work our way through the story of, of the church, as we've said many times before, our story, where we got our start as the church of Jesus Christ and, and as members of it. And, and the deal is this, the Apostle Paul, where we're beginning this morning, is at the start of what became known as his second missionary journey. He's taking, uh, along with traveling companions, the gospel first to some places that they've been before, the gospel has been before, but then God is going, and they don't know this yet, but God's going to launch them out into new territory. He's going to take them with the gospel to places that had never been before, and we are at the outset of that right now at the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Remember that it comes on the heels, and we'll talk about this in a moment as well, it comes on the heels of a, of a very dramatic and unexpected and unwelcome split through a conflict at the end of chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas, who together went on the first missionary journey, could no longer sort of make peace with one another, and they had to go their separate ways. And we know that God worked that out. We talked about the rest of the story. But right now, they're still living out that reality of separation. And I told you last Sunday that Barnabas and Mark, they sail out of the picture, and we never see them in the book of Acts again. And instead, uh, by God's direction and spirit, Luke, the author of Acts, zeroes in on Paul and the new ministry team of Paul and Silas and where they're headed. And so that's sort of the very quick, kind of sketchy overview of of where we are. I want to begin reading now with that in mind. In Acts 16, we're going to look at the first 10 verses, where this is what the Word of God says. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, cities he'd visited before, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man, Timothy, to go with him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, and while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the council back in chapter 15 for them to observe. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he, Paul, had seen that vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, I don't know the first thing, actual technical thing about graphic design, but I'll tell you right up front, I'm fascinated by it anyway. Now, I know we have graphic designers in our church. We have trained graphic artists here right in our midst. They do this stuff you see, Peter Ekoakwa especially does this stuff you see on the screens all the time. Talented, gifted, skilled, trained people. That's not me, but I'm fascinated by what they do. 
And in particular, when it comes to to the art of graphic design, I'm especially fascinated and intrigued by the the logos and the word marks and and the various designs that that companies and athletic teams and even churches use to present themselves to the general public. You see a, a picture or an image or a logo, a word, and you think this particular company or that particular sports team or, or a church or a ministry or some other sort of thing. I'm fascinated by that sort of thing, graphic design. Again, I don't know the first thing about it. I have no idea how to do it, but I love it. And I think about it and I read about it really almost daily. And, uh, and one of the things that particularly fascinates me in the realm, the field of graphic design, is the use of what's called negative space. Now, I know that there's got to be a technical definition out there somewhere, and again, there are probably people among us this morning who would know what such a definition is. I don't have a technical definition, but I can tell you what negative space is, in my own words, and it's this. Negative space is the part of a design, a logo, a a word mark, some sort of image, where at first it looks like nothing's going on. It's the white space. It's the blank part of the design. Looks like nothing's happening. But in reality, and upon closer examination, the negative space is where the real action is. Where the real message or, or, or sort of idea is being communicated or being sent. For instance, let me just give you a quick uh, few examples of negative space in graphic design. Let's get that first picture up there. What's that the logo for? Okay, there's four people under the age of 25 here, and they're the ones who would know. <laughs> what is it? Twitter, that's right. Now, if you look at that in, in, in an objective sense, we see in the middle the image of a bird. Now, the bird, there's a sense when you talk negative space, isn't really there. Nobody drew a bird. Nobody created a bird and said they created the positive space, the blue around it. And the way they created the positive space brings out this image of a bird, that little birdie that takes our Twitter messages all over the world one person to another. That's a very obvious, obvious example of negative space. Let me give you a more creative one. Let's get that next picture up there. That is the old logo, the old word mark of the mathematically challenged Big Ten Conference. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The Big Ten is more mathematically challenged than ever. It's called the Big Ten. It has 14 teams. This logo was created when they went from 10 to 11. They added Penn State to the conference. They should have just kicked Northwestern out right then, but they didn't. They kept them around, but they kept the name because it was historically significant. It's called the Big Ten. They were 11 teams, and in order to convey that message, they did a very creative thing with negative space. Let's see it. In the negative space, what do you see? An 11. Very good. Aha, there it is. Now, it isn't really there. It's not part of the design, but in the negative space, there it appears. Let me show you my favorite one, and I think it's my favorite just because I looked at it for so long and saw it for so many years without ever realizing it was there. That's the logo, of course, for FedEx. Now, FedEx has one job. It's to get packages from point A to point B as quickly and as effectively and as efficiently as possible. They're all about motion, all about movement. And so they did a cool thing in their logo in the negative space. Let's hit the button and see what they did. You ever seen the little arrow there before? little aha moment. It's always been there. Maybe you've never seen it. Now you'll never be able to unsee it. Every time the truck goes by, you'll see the little arrow. But what a creative use of negative space. At first, here's the idea. It looks as if nothing's going on, but on closer examination, that's where the action is. That's where the message is really being sent. You can see negative space on our own church bulletin. If you look at the top corner, that Maranatha Bible Church logo that Peter created several years ago. What's right in the middle of our logo? It's a what? Now, it's not really there. 
But it's created by the use of positive space, and in the negative space is the message of who we are and what we are all about as a church of followers of Jesus Christ, about his cross and all that it represents. To which you listen to all that and hear all that, and you say, cool, thanks for the slideshow, what's the point? Well, here's the point. My point is that in essentially the same way that in graphic design, negative space is where it looks at first like nothing's going on, but As I said, it's where the real action happens to be. I would suggest to you that spiritually speaking as believers, the same same thing goes. That often it is in the negative spaces of our lives. The places where it looks like nothing's going on or whatever is going on is all going wrong is where the real action and activity of God is taking place, that God is working in the negative spaces, the places and relationships and circumstances where we can't see what he's doing. And I believe that, and I believe that for a lot of reasons, but I believe that the passage we just read here in God's word brings that truth out in in, in some pretty dynamic ways. So in the time that we have left together this morning, I want to show you three things in these 10 verses. Three surprise blessings, three really exciting things that were born out of or birthed in negative space, in places where it looked like nothing was happening or nothing good was happening, and yet God used those hopeless, empty, difficult situations to do something truly extraordinary. Three surprise blessings at the start of Paul's second missionary journey, the first of which is this. It's the addition, number one, of Timothy to their team. The addition of God's servant, Timothy, to their team, which we noted briefly last week. I said on this new journey Paul was taking, Timothy was going to join the crew. And and that proved to be, it happens right here in the first three verses of the chapter, that proved to be a momentous decision. Because if you've never read ahead in the New Testament, what you need to know and what you'll find out when you do is that Timothy became one of the most significant and effective servants of Jesus Christ the church has ever seen. Paul added him to the team, and and very quickly he became Paul's chief apprentice, his right-hand man, his go-to guy. He was an effective preacher. He was a a gifted evangelist. Many people believe that eventually he became pastor of the great influential church at Ephesus, where he received two of the most rich and personal letters in the whole New Testament, 1 and 2 Timothy. I mean, this guy, he became a big deal is what we'd say or, or how we'd see him. But I want you to look at the circumstances under which Timothy was brought into the team. Because when we begin reading in verse 1 again, this is what it says. It says, Paul came to Derbe, then he went to Lystra. Lystra is where he meets Timothy, because it says a disciple was there named Timothy. Now, the reason he's called a disciple, we have to sort of do some math on this. But the reason we believe he's called a disciple is because Paul had been to Lystra a couple of times before. And the thought is that on one of those two previous journeys, Timothy had been in the crowd when Paul was preaching as a young man, maybe as a preteen or an early teenager. And on one of those occasions, he'd trusted Jesus Christ. And now, in the interim, between Paul's last visit to town and this new visit to town, he had become a disciple. He had been growing and moving toward maturity in Christ, so much so that when Paul came into town, he saw this guy, man, we got to have this guy, man, he's going somewhere. God can use him. We can use him. Let's add him to the team. He is a disciple, a learning, growing follower of Jesus Christ. But here's what's interesting about Timothy. Look at the rest of verse one. It says he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer But his father was a Greek, and the implication there, and 
And, and the, the lack of evidence elsewhere in the New Testament would indicate that therefore his father was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to some of you here this morning that the last half of verse 1 ought to be a great encouragement to you and where you are as a follower of Jesus today. Because some of you are in the same situation. You are in a situation, because what, what are we being told here? And for lack of a better term what, we're, term, what we're being told here is that Timothy was the child of a spiritual mismatch. He's got a believing parent and an unbelieving parent. He's got a mom who loves Jesus and a dad who apparently is, at the very least, uninterested. And he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why ought that be an encouragement to some of you today? Because you're in the same situation. Some of you here, many in our church family, are single parents. And you're trying to get those boys and girls, those children God gave you. you your, your deepest desire is that they would know Jesus Christ and trust Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ. And you're going it alone. And it, I've never been there, but I know this much. It's hard. Many others of you, you've got a husband, you've got a wife, but they don't, it's like Timothy's. They don't share your faith. And you're pulling this sled by yourself. I want them to know Jesus and my, my sons and daughters to love Jesus and to follow Jesus, but, but I'm working this equation all by myself. Be encouraged. That's where Timothy came from. Evidently, his mom was faithful. She hung in there. She did what it took, and, and it, was, it may have been hard, and it may have been discouraging, and for many of you in that situation this morning, it feels like negative space, right? Because what do you do? You come in every Sunday and you see moms and dads walking in with their boys and girls. Well, there's a husband and wife and they're working together to follow Jesus. And there's another, and everywhere you look is a husband and wife with kids and they're teaching them, or it looks like they're teaching them to follow Jesus. And you're saying, I didn't get that deal. I'm in a different one. I'm in negative space. Again, that's where Timothy came from. Our God can do great things. Our God can work wonders. Think about it. Few people in all of history have impacted the world more for Christ than Timothy. I mean, he's right up there. Doesn't have to be any different for you, because that's what God can accomplish. You may be pulling the sled alone. It may be negative space, but again, sometimes it's in our negative spaces where God's doing his most extraordinary work. Now, we read on, and I just want to make mention of this because it's there, and we need to touch on it. Verse 3 says Paul definitely. So he looks at this guy and he says he's a disciple and, and he wants him to go with him. But it says then in verse 3 that he took him and circumcised him because of, of the Jews that they were going to encounter in this part of the world where they were going. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And if you've been with us the past several weeks, you know, that seems like something of a contradiction because what did they just decide in chapter 15? You didn't need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus Christ. You didn't have to become obedient to Jewish law in order to truly uh, become and, and live life as a Christian and yet here's Paul doing this. And I don't want to spend much time on this except to simply say it's not a contradiction. It may look like it, but it's not because this wasn't an issue of salvation. This was simply an issue of Paul knowing his audience. So we're going to be going into Jewish territory. I've got a Jewish young man. Somehow word had gotten out that this Jewish young man had not been circumcised. That could be an issue. He said, let's take care of it so that we can be as effective and, and have as few stumbling blocks as possible to the gospel. So he brings him on the team. One translation says he had Timothy circumcised out of consideration for those to whom he'd been speaking, and then they were good to go. And the reason I don't want to spend any more time on that, even though it might be an interesting study, is because of what I've alluded to already. The bigger deal here is this. The fact that Timothy, the fact that Timothy could even join the team in the first place is also a product of negative space. 
Because why was there a vacancy on Paul's missionary team? Because there was a blow-up last week. There was Paul and Barnabas, and they, one of them wanted to take Mark because they need help. They need an assistant. And, and, and this, this discussion becomes a dispute. The dispute becomes a conflict. The conflict blows up. They go their separate ways. Now there's an opening on the team. I would suggest to you that looks like negative space. Bad deal. And it was. But what did God do? We, our big idea last week, God's agenda is never thwarted. They come to Lystra. There's Timothy. Boom, he's on the team. Negative space. God was up to something. They screwed it up. God wasn't worried. They made a mistake. God hadn't broken a sweat. He used the vacancy to bring Timothy in. And so what I'm saying to you is a great, big, ugly, negative space in chapter 15 allowed God to provide a great, big, surprise, positive blessing here in chapter 16. And that was about to become the norm for this second missionary journey. God at work in negative spaces doing his most extraordinary work. We see that a second way in verses 4 and 5. The first surprise blessing out of negative space, one, verses 1 through 3, is the addition, first of all, of Timothy to the team. The second thing we see in verses 4 and 5 is getting in a negative space through the multiplication of believers and of churches. Verses 4 and 5 are all about the multiplication of the church of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one except to note that what we read in verses 4 and 5 is not your typical progress report for the book of Acts. I've said to you before, as we go through Acts, periodically there's progress reports. The church is growing. People are coming to Christ. They're being added. Their numbers are, are being added. They're starting churches in new places. And, and this is sort of like that once again, because what does it say? Verse 4, they were passing through the cities where they'd been before, delivering the message from the Jerusalem council about what salvation is and how to get along with one another. And as a result, verse 5 says, the churches were being strengthened in the faith, and they were increasing in number daily. Progress report. And we say, great news! People are being encouraged. The church is growing. Can you imagine if we came in here next Sunday and we said every day last week the church increased in numbers, that people were added to our numbers daily? I call that an encouraging report. Man, what I wouldn't give to... I mean, just, I mean, that was the norm at this season in these cities, in these places. That is great news, wonderful progress report, but remember where it was happening. And if you've been here and paying attention, you'll recall where it was happening negative spaces, literally. Because what it says is Paul is visiting the cities he'd been to before, such as Pisidian Antioch. Remember what happened in Pisidian Antioch many chapters ago? They were run out of town. So we've heard your little gospel lesson, we've heard your story, we've heard your preaching, and we want you to go. And they weren't friendly about it. They'd been run out of town. So they go to the next town, they go to Iconium. In Iconium, we don't like your story either. You're preaching, people are getting saved, churches are starting, we want you out. And if you don't get out, we will stone you. All right, so they leave. They move on to Lystra. That's where they just picked up Timothy. They didn't like, the, the unbelievers in Lystra didn't like the church, didn't like Paul, and in this case, Silas either, but in that case, Barnabas. And not only did they say, get out of our town, and we will stone you if, I, if you don't, they actually did stone Paul. Remember that? Says they left him for dead. They thought the job was done. God protected him. God healed him. That's where the church was growing. Not where they had free and unfettered access to preach and say whatever they wanted to say and do whatever they wanted to do, but where there was pressure. Where there was persecution. Where there was opposition. 
They don't want him there. They're stoning them. They're imprisoning believers. They're they're pressuring them to stop doing what they're doing. And here's what Luke reports again in verse 5. So the churches are being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number. Everybody say daily. Daily. Increasing daily. Let me ask you a question. Who but God could do that? (laughs) Who but God would do that? See, I'm going to go where the pressure, where the temperature is highest, the pressure is greatest, the opposition is strictest, and that's where I'm going to grow my church. And guess what? That's not an exception. If you trace the pattern of church history down through the years from that day to this, you'll see God does that kind of thing all the time. That the gospel often grows quickest and, and fastest and deepest in the places where there is the strictest and severest opposition. Take China. Now, only God knows the numbers for sure, and the estimates vary, but but people generally believe that in the year 1900, there were maybe 100,000 true believers in Jesus Christ in the vast land of China. And then the great missionary movement of the late 19th and early 20th century happened, and thousands upon thousands of missionaries came from the West into China to evangelize and and lead people to Christ, and it's believed that between 1900 and 1950, the church grew from 100,000 to a half million, maybe 700,000 on the upper end. And you know what happened around 1950? Communism. They cracked down. They kicked all the missionaries out. They said, no more churches, no more evangelism, no more preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess what? Between 1950 and today, conservative estimates is that the church has grown from 700,000 to 130 to 150 million believers in Jesus Christ, where the written law of the land is no Christianity, no evangelism, Let me ask you again, who but our God could do that? Who but our God would do that? That's the way he works. What does it prove? It proves the Holy Spirit doesn't need a passport to transform human hearts. He'll do it where he wants to do it. And he'll do it where it gives God greatest glory. I would also say that might suggest that perhaps as we see the the darkness encroaching on us, and it is, and the pressure rising on us, and it is, and I believe it will continue to do so, we need to stop wringing our hands and signing petitions and start letting the light shine. Everybody knows what we're against. Everybody knows what we oppose as believers in Jesus Christ. How about telling them what we're for? Let the pressure the light to shine. If it's getting darker, the light shines brighter, right? I think there's an example here for us. It's often in the negative places and spaces where it looks like God isn't working or he, in our estimation, can't be working (laughs) or he's really working. Example number one, the addition of Timothy to the team. Timothy gets to come in because there was a blow-up back in Antioch. Example number two, the churches are growing daily in places where the church is not welcome to even be in the first place. And that leads us to the third, and I really think maybe the most brilliant example of God working in negative spaces found in this story. At least it's the the broadest, the largest one, and it's simply in what I'd term verses 6 through 10, the advancement of the gospel. The third surprise blessing of this missionary journey, at least right at the outset, is the dramatic advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, I want you to look with me again at verses 6 through 10. Just follow along. I'm going to read them one more time. Because this is what it says. It says, they passed, excuse me, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. This is Paul, Silas, now Timothy's on the team. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Messiah, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, not permit them to go there. So passing by Messiah, they came down to Troas, where a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
a man of Macedonia standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he'd seen the vision, immediately, we, why we? Because Luke's now part of the team. We believe he joined the team in Troas, Luke, the author of Acts. It's now a band of four. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Now, I realize that at first and even second reading, a lot of this, these, this passage here, this Verses 6 through 10 kind of looks like an alphabet soup of, of names of places and cities and regions that none of us know anything about. We can't identify with and We wouldn't know where to look for on a map. But I want you to know it's something entirely different. In fact, I believe that these five verses are a record of one of the most significant turning points in all of not just church but human history. These five verses with places we can't even pronounce. One of the most dramatic movements in all of human history happened in what's recorded in these five verses. Because here's what went down. Let me just walk you through it real quick. And we're going to throw a map up on the screen here. And I realize it may be difficult to see in back. Uh, the best one I could come up with. But this is the, the story of the second missionary journey. If you go down to the far right corner, it says Antioch. That's where they started. They've been traveling through Derby and, and Lystra. They pick up Timothy. They go to Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia. Now they're somewhere on the northern upswing, maybe where that big arrowhead is right there. And that's where we get into, we believe, verses 6 and 7 and 8. And what happened is this. Somewhere along that path, running north out of Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Silas and Timothy, now together, it says they wanted to venture into Asia. Now, that's not a reference to the continent as we think of it today, but see the region just to the south, and we really think the southwest, that they probably had their eyes on the prize of Ephesus. Vast city, influential place. Get the gospel there, and it can go everywhere. But what does the Bible say in verse 6? It says the Holy Spirit closed the door. <coughs> so they can't go south. So instead, it says next, verse 7, they look north to Bithynia. That, well, we can't go south, southwest, let's go northeast. They see that city of Byzantium up on the seashore, and all running along the coast of the sea, there were other pivotal and influential cities. Get the gospel there, you can go into the land, you can jump on boats and take it across the sea. It would seem that that would be the next influential place to go, but what does verse 7 say? So they looked north to Bithynia and wanted to go there, but this time the Spirit of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit, closed that door too. Well, what do you do? Here you are. You want to go south? God says no. You want to go north? He says no to that too. You don't want to go back to the east because you've already been there three times. Do the math. What's left? Go west, young man. <laughs> so they did. Clearly, God doesn't want us to go any other direction. So it says they did in verse 8. They traveled up and then west to Troas. That's where the path, the journey, the highway, whatever they were on, took them. And what happened in Troas, verse 9, a very unusual invitation, very perhaps unexpected moment. It says, Paul had a vision in the night, a man from Macedonia standing and appealing to him. Now you see where Macedonia is, right? Across the sea, all the way on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And there's a guy over there in this vision saying, come help us, we need the gospel. Come tell us in our land about Jesus Christ. And verse 10 tells us that's exactly what they did. And the reason I say that's such a momentous moment in, in the story of, of all human history is that's how the gospel got to Europe. It had been in this region, Israel, Syria, uh, sort of Asia Minor here, and suddenly it jumps to Europe, and you know what? It never looked back. 
as, as Europe, John Stott says, became, and it's true, became the first, if, if such a thing is possible, the first Christian continent, the first landmass where the gospel truly took over. And for the next 1,900 years, that's where all the missionaries came from, or the vast majority. All the missionary societies and missionary movements, they went to North America, to South America, to, to Africa, back into Asia, over toward Australia. For, for 18, 1,900 years, that's where the bulk of the action was, all because Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke got on a boat and went west. Big deal. Really, really big deal. Because that's how you heard the gospel. That's how I heard the gospel. Because four guys hanging out in Troas who had no idea where they were supposed to go next got a vision in the night and they obeyed. And they took the gospel and God began to use it. And so we look at that and what do we conclude? We look, well, that was clearly God's will for their lives in that moment. No doubt about it. That is what God wanted them to do. That is where God wanted them to go. But remember, they didn't know that. Not like we do. I mean, they figured it out, and we have the rest of the story. But remember, they're living this deal out in real time. They're doing one day, one hour, one decision, one conversation. I would submit to you, this is four ordinary guys. Believers, but ordinary guys. Dealing on one end. Here's where they are, and I want you to think about this, because here's really the heart of where we're headed, and then we'll be done. Four ordinary guys. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, dealing on one hand with the fact that God has just closed two very intriguing doors. God, we want to go here. No. God, we want to go here. No. And a third door they'd never even considered. Oh, by the way, that was open to them in a vision that Paul had by himself. And then he wakes up the next morning. Hey, guys, you'll never believe what happened last night. A man appeared from Macedonia in my vision, and we're supposed to get on a boat and go there. Really? Never saw that one coming. Not in the plan, not on the itinerary, not necessarily on the agenda that we were mapping out. And they're trying to put the pieces together. And it probably didn't make sense. God, Ephesus, great target. No. Bithynia, good target. No. Macedonia, who's ever been there? They don't even speak, they don't even speak our language. We don't know where, where are we going to stay? What are we going to do? That leads me to a couple of important observations, not because I say so, but simply because they're right here in the text, and they are as follows. Number one, I'd have you note, observe with me, that God didn't tell him why he closed the first two doors. It never says why they weren't allowed to go to Ephesus or to Asia. It never says why they weren't allowed to go to Bithynia. It just says on one hand, the Holy Spirit closed one door and the Spirit of Jesus closed the other, and there was no prying them back open. God gave him an answer, and he didn't explain himself. God does that sometimes. In the moment, all they know is this is a big negative space. That's not what we saw coming. That's not what we thought was supposed to happen. Negative space. It looks like God's not working, or at least not the way we want him to. I'd also have you note, secondly, that not only were they not told why God closed doors one and two, we aren't told how he did it. That might be a bigger deal. Because don't we want to look at these verses and, and go, I mean, when it says in verse 6, it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. How's that look? <laughs> I mean, letter in the mailbox? What is it? Voice in the clouds? I mean, really, I'm, you know, I mean, we could have fun with it, but how'd they know? And then in verse 7, it says, they came to Messiah. They wanted to go to Bithynia. They were trying to go. And the Spirit of Jesus put a big road closed sign. No, he didn't. But somehow he told them, don't go there. And what I want to know is how? Because what do I want to know? The same thing you want to know. What's God's will for my life? 
What direction does God want me to take? What's my next move? Is it press on? Is it go to school? Is it get married? Is it retire? Is it become a missionary? Is it, what is it? And I think it would be really helpful if God had told us in verses 6 and 7 how he closed those doors. Because that's what we want to know. How, does, how do we know when God's closed a door? I think it would be helpful. Now, I think I know why God didn't do that. This is just me talking. But I think the reason God didn't do that is because if he had, we'd write a book about it, and we'd create a formula about it, and it'd preach well, and it'd sell a lot of copies, and we'd all know God's will for our life, and none of us would have to depend on him for anything because the formula's right there. God doesn't want formulas. God wants dependence without faith. It's impossible to please him. So he doesn't give us a formula, and he doesn't tell us how it happened. And and I say that those are two very important observations. They weren't told why, and we aren't told how, because that's exactly how your life works, mine too. God doesn't often always explain himself. He doesn't often give us all the details and the backstory or the insight into what's next. I mean, let's prove it. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever closed a door in your life? Has God ever told you, no? Has God ever said, not now, and not explained himself? You bet he has. Let me ask you another question. Has God ever said, take this step of faith? Here's an open door. You didn't see it, but I had it, all. I had it ready all the time. The door is now open, and I want you to step through it. I want you to follow me by faith. Ever had that happen? Yeah, but how can I be sure, and how do I know? And is it him, or isn't it? I mean, is it something I made up, or is it him talking? Or course, and some of you are there today. Some of you are squarely in the middle of great big negative spaces where either it looks like God isn't working or whatever he is doing wasn't part of the plan. Negative spaces. And that's why I think the real lesson we need to embrace here isn't the lesson of why God closes some doors and opens others. It's not really the lesson of how God reveals his will for our lives to us. I think the real issue here in terms of us in real life today is what Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke did, which is this. They obeyed. They did what God told them to do. Look at verse 10. When he had seen the vision immediately. Everybody say immediately. Now everybody circle it in your Bible. Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Paul, where are we going to spend the night? Not sure. How much does it cost to get on the boat? Don't know. Where are we going to eat when we get there? No idea. But immediately they went. Why? Because God said so. Somehow they were all convinced that what Paul had seen was the real deal. They simply prayerfully did the math. God closed door number one, God closed door number two, but he kicked door number three wide open, trusting that when the time was right, he'd show the next step. By the way, isn't it encouraging that even Paul didn't always know what he was supposed to do next? I mean, isn't that helpful? (laughs) Even the great apostle Paul scratched his head should be greatly encouraging to us, but he followed, and that's how they ended up advancing the gospel into Europe and beyond. God revealed his plan through the negative space of disappointment, of uncertainty, and firmly closed doors. And what did he do? He brought immeasurable blessing out of it. Closed doors, negative space, God is working. 
So let me ask you, the question is almost too obvious to be asked, but I'll do it anyway. Can you look at your life this morning and point at any negative spaces? God's saying, no, this wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't supposed to, I'm not sure. Maybe it's not a no, it's just a a great big question mark. Is God working here? What does he want me to do? What's next? A negative space where it sure looks like despite your best efforts and your, your deepest integrity and your most fervent prayers, God's not working. It's a relational issue. It's a financial crisis. It's an unmet desire. It's an unanswered request. It's something. So where's God? What's he doing? I don't know, but he's doing something. That's what this story tells me. And chances are it's bigger and better. It may be a long time coming, but it's bigger and better and more significant than we think. Because the big idea this morning is this. God is at work in our negative spaces. God is at work in our negative spaces. I can't tell you how, and I cannot tell you when. It may be that this negative space is something that's not going to be clear till we're home. That's God's business. He does it at various ways and at differing speeds and by means that it is impossible for us to predict and sometimes see. But again, walking with Jesus is a matter of walking by what? Faith. One step at a time, one choice, one decision at a time. Walking with him by faith. And the story tells us that it's often in the places where it appears nothing's happening that God's doing his most extraordinary and enduring work. Father, I know some of us are saying, maybe in our hearts this morning, I think I would be in certain seasons saying, yeah, that that might be true, but my story's different. My problem's bigger. My question mark is greater, uglier, something. And others of, of us are saying, Lord, in our heart, oh God, is this really true? Can it be true? Can I trust that you're going to work in my negative space? Not that I'm going to live happily ever after, but somehow you're going to use it for your glory and my good. Oh, Father, give us the faith to trust you. Father, show us that that your wisdom and, and, and the doors and your arrangement of them and your opening and closing, Father, it isn't for us to direct. It isn't for us to analyze. It is for us simply to follow. Father, encourage the weary hearts here this morning. Father, humble the ones who think they have it all figured out already. Help us all to remember that when we walk with Jesus, we all do it daily by faith. And that as we sang earlier, you are faithful. And that as we also sang, that just as you have done great things, you are doing great things. And you will do great things again. Father, I pray you take the things of truth that have been spoken this morning and seal them to our hearts and take the things of the flesh and cause them to be forgotten that we leave thinking only of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.